0: so uh let's uh, let's go ahead and pray and then we'll get started uh, for those of you that are here uh, why don't you stand with me uh, for those in your pjs at home um, do whatever you want nobody will know so let's pray well father we we love you and and lord we're very thankful for well at least i'm thankful for the snow i love how it changes the scenery makes everything stunning and different and beautiful and, um, and we pray, Lord, that in our community and elsewhere that you would just keep people safe as they drive and, uh, and as they play in the snow. And, Lord, I pray that this morning as we get into your word that you would use it to minister to us, to encourage us, and that by it, Lord, we would draw closer to you and be better equipped for the world that we live in. So Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, be seated. So today... Uh, we're going to take a break from Romans, um, by which we were taking a break from Galatians, but uh, it'll all come together in the end. Uh, we were afraid that uh, not as many people would um, be tuned in for Romans chapter 8, and Romans chapter 8, we believe, is essential to Christian discipleship. So I thought I would do something to complement uh, all of that, and then we'll come back to Romans 8 next week. So for this morning, I'd like to talk about the inspiration, the authority, and the usefulness of the Bible, of the Scriptures. And uh, if you were at the conference last, uh, a couple weeks ago when Alan Schliemann was here, he actually began with the trustworthiness of the Bible, for which he gave archaeological and then manuscript evidence uh, for the Scriptures reliability. And it's interesting, the evidence that he provided really is uh, just the tip of the iceberg. He was barely scratching the surface of all that is available to people. Uh, And as we look at the Bible versus uh, other ancient documents in history, um, the Bible alone is shown to be reliable in what it reports. But then, you know, a question has to be asked is, well, it has to be stated and then asked, but it is possible uh, that another document from ancient history could have reported accurately the things of history. And if if that is true, uh, then what is it that distinguishes the Bible from that? What is it? And so that is the the issue I want to talk about this morning. It brings us to the issue of inspiration, of inspiration. So by inspiration, we mean that the original authors fell under divine guidance for the writing of the individual books of the Bible. Now when we talk about inspiration of the Bible, we don't mean what so many people mean today when they talk about being inspired by someone, someone else, to do one thing or another. Uh, We might say as high school boys are inspired by great athletes to work harder in sports, or others who are inspired by great authors or great soldiers to follow in their steps. That is not Biblical inspiration. The authors of Scripture were not, we might say, so impressed with God that they set out to write the various books about him. No, the various authors were actually being used by God to write the various books of the Bible. Uh, The Apostle Peter, he defines inspiration this way. He says, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So first, Peter refers to all Scripture as prophecy, and he says, "In that prophecy, as it is recorded in the Bible, he says it was never by the will of man. What he means is it didn't come from the imagination of men, but he says holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. To, to be moved by the Spirit uh, literally means to be carried along. And men were used by God for the writing of his word. Even their personalities were used, but the words of Scripture are nonetheless God's words. A Greek scholar Kenneth Wiest, he defines the relationship between revelation and inspiration this way. He says, Revelation is the act of God the Holy Spirit imparting to the Bible writers truth incapable of being discovered by man's unaided reason. Inspiration is the act of God the Holy Spirit enabling the Bible writers to write down in God-chosen words infallibly the truth revealed. Now, infallible, uh, by that he means that the scriptures were given by God to man uh, without error. And then Paul, he adds another element to the doctrine of inspiration, saying to Timothy, he says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, 2 Timothy 3.16. Now, that is the translation of the traditional text and, and also the NASB, but some other modern translations have translated it more literally from the original. The Greek word that Paul used uh, is the word theopneustos, which literally means that the Scriptures were breathed out by God. Uh, It's the very breath of God, and so when we speak, uh, when well we speak, we actually breathe out when we do so, and the words that we speak, of course, are our words breathed out by us. Now, God, of course, does not breathe; He doesn't have lungs. He doesn't even have a body, for that matter. He's pure spirit. But the figure of speech is clear. Uh, Paul is saying the Scriptures come from God. He's their source. Whereas theologians say God is the primary author or cause of Scripture, and holy men of God were the, the secondary or the instrumental authors of Scripture. And so God, as it were, breathed out His Word into the prophets and the apostles, who then by His guidance recorded the words of Scripture without error. So a question always comes up, How do we know that the scriptures are without error? How do we know that they're flawless? Well, it's pretty simple, really. It's because it's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible. In uh, Dr. Norman Geiser's defense for the Bible's inerrancy, he says that if the Bible was inspired by God, it must be without error because God cannot lie. He can't say an untruth. In an interview with Dr. Wayne Grudem, he was asked how he knows the Bible is without error, and he responded in kind, saying because it's impossible for God to lie. If God cannot lie, then his word must be true in everything it records, everything it affirms and implies and denies. Yeah. And God said to Moses, uh, he says, I'm not a man that I should lie, Numbers 23, 19. Paul said that God cannot lie in Titus chapter 1, verse 2, and he said to Timothy that God is always faithful. Because he can't even deny himself; that is, he can't he can't do something contradictory to his essential nature. That's two Timothy two thirteen, and then the author of Hebrews says that it is actually impossible for God to lie. It's impossible; uh, He cannot do contrary to His own nature. Uh, Hebrews chapter one or Hebrews chapter six, verse seventeen through eighteen. And in a figurative sense, John says the same thing. He says that God is light, and in Him. There is no darkness at all. That's First John 1, 5. And then Jesus, of course, speaks with final authority in his prayer in John 17. He said, Father, sanctify them with your truth. He says, your word is truth, John 17, verse 17. So the Bible is God's word. And because God cannot err, his word cannot err. Okay? So back to the, the inspiration of the scriptures, On a number of occasions, it's very interesting, Jesus refers to David, King David, as one who prophesied, one who spoke by the Spirit. And when David spoke by the Spirit, he was aware of it. And this is what he said. He said, the Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. 2 Samuel 23, 2. So listen to that language. The Lord spoke by me. I was the agent he used to communicate his word, and his very word was actually the word that was on my tongue. Now it's interesting, commenting on this verse, some, uh, some dead guys, they're all the best, and Fawcett and Brown, they, they comment on this, they say this. They say, nothing can more clearly show that all that is excellent in spirit, beautiful in language, or grand in prophetic imagery, which the Psalms of David contain, were owing not to his superiority and natural talents, or acquired knowledge, but to the suggestion and dictates of God's Spirit. So when we look at all of the data in the scriptures and we put it all together, we can say something very clear about the scriptures. All scripture, including every word from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, with its grammar and syntax, has been breathed out by God through the various human authors, utilizing their individual personalities ensuring that the original autographs of the Bible were without error. We have great confidence in that. And then by the critical analysis of all of the available manuscripts of the Bible, we can be certain that what we have in our Bibles today is nearly 100% identical to the originals. And if there is a 0.1% difference between the originals and what we have today, we know that it doesn't affect any doctrine at all, at all. Now, if you would like to study further on uh, the Bible's inspiration and inerrancy, I'd encourage you uh, to read a document called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Uh, All of these great men that many people know their names, like R.C. Sproul and Gleason Archer, Norman Geisler, um, they got together in the 70s and they wrote this document to clarify uh, what it is that all of the... The, the statements in the Bible claim for itself. Um, it's on our web page. It's right below our Statement of Faith. The link is, or you can just Google the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And then after the, the, uh, the committee was finished, a number of them wrote books about uh, the statement. Those are available as well. And then if you're interested in the, the Bible's reliability, I'd encourage you to start with a book by a man named F.F. Bruce called The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? It's a little tiny book. It's easy to read. It's very clear. I'd encourage you to do that. So let's, let's move on to the second point. Now, because the Bible has been breathed out by God, who cannot err, we must conclude that the scriptures have a final authority on every subject they address. I love the controversy of this statement they are the final authority on absolutely every subject they address. They certainly do not say everything about every subject, but what they say, but what they do say about any subject has been found to be absolutely true. So the scriptures have final authority on all things it address. But of course, the most important subject in the Bible are the person of God and his will for man. Now historically, the people of God have looked at the Bible and said that it alone is the final rule for faith and practice. If you've ever read a statement of faith from a church, an evangelical church, uh, if you've read ours, that statement is in there, okay? That the Word of God is the final rule for faith and conduct or practice. It just means that the Bible prescribes what it is we should believe and how it is that we should behave. It's not up to man or an individual, not a church, Not a particular philosophy, religion, or even government entity to prescribe for us what we should believe and how we should behave. The authority of the word supersedes all of that. So it's only by the scriptures that we can think rightly about God and even reality. You know, the naturalist, by excluding God from creation, from the the world, he misses out. He does not properly understand reality. He needs the word to do so. So the Bible speaks with perfect accuracy and final authority simply because when the Bible speaks, the infallible God is speaking. Now, it follows then from my final point that the Bible is foremost in its usefulness, and it should be the very thing that addresses and governs all the issues of life for the glory of God and the benefit of his people. For example, the Scripture should govern every relationship, including marriage and friendships, parent and child, between co-workers, bosses, subordinates, and government, whatever. The word should be implemented in every occupation. Every ethic should be controlled by it, every attitude. All our speech, uh, especially currently in the, uh, the political atmosphere that we live, we think that we have freedom of speech as Americans, but we do not have freedom of speech as Christians. Amen? We're limited to the things we say, even the use of our bodies and the applications of our minds. All these should be directed, they should be governed by the scriptures themselves. Now, the real problem, of course, is our recognition and response to biblical authority. But however we do respond doesn't change the reality of what the Bible is or what we should do about it. Truth is not, it's not partial or sensitive to our feelings or opinions. But a humble, obedient response to the word of God yields the greatest fruit. So I wanna look at some scriptures with you on this. I think there's scriptures that are easy for all of us to read over and really not consider. David said this. He says, You, God, through your commandments, that's what God has said, you make me wiser than all my enemies, for your word is ever with me. He says, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, that is the ancient people, because I keep your precepts. That's a a powerful testimony about the Word of God. And you have to keep the historical context in mind because David was limited in the amount of scripture that was available to him. You know, he only had Genesis through possibly 1 Samuel at this point in history. The rest had not been written. So David didn't know, he didn't have or know the rest of the Old Testament history books, the books of wisdom and poetry by Solomon. He knew nothing of the prophets, nothing of the New Testament. But here's the thing. We have all of God's revelation now. So how much more wisdom and understanding is available to us? How much more? Peter, of course, a thousand years later, with a thousand years more of revelation, he's reflecting on the Word of God, and he says that by the knowledge of God, which only comes to us through the Word of God, he said we have all things pertaining to life and godliness, 2 Peter 1.3. Peter didn't say that we have a whole lot of things pertaining to life and godliness or most things pertaining to life and godliness. He very specifically says that we have all things pertaining to life and godliness. And then what he does is he provides just a sampling of some of those things. By the knowledge of God through the scriptures we have, he says, become partakers of God's nature, the divine nature. He says we've escaped the corruption of the world by which we can obtain virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance and godliness, and brotherly kindness, and love. That's just a sampling. He's saying because we have God, we have his word, we can add to virtue, faith, knowledge, and so forth. There's no end to what we can add because God is infinite. Earlier we quoted a portion of, of 2 Timothy 2, or, uh, sorry, chapter 3, verse 15, regarding the inspiration of the Bible, but it's the rest of the passage that mentions the benefits of inspiration. Again, Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God. But then he says it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So it's by the word of God that Paul is saying that we enjoy all of these benefits. But the thing is, those benefits are only obtained, they're only experienced by those who give their regular attention to the study and the meditation of the Word. We don't absorb it by osmosis. Amen? God says to us that that, um, those who come to him must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek his face through the Word. In Matthew 4.4, Jesus said that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He's saying that every person that wants to truly live must feed on the Word of God. Another verse that is intriguing to me, we, you know, we, have, the, we have the book of Job, we have the person of Job. There's a great challenge in dating uh, Job, but it seems that Job lived probably around the time of Abraham. He didn't have the law, as it were. He makes no reference of the temple, even though he makes reference to sacrifice. It was illegal for uh, people to make sacrifice outside the temple. Job was a perfect man, the Bible says. That is, he was complete. And uh, a man of that character would not sacrifice outside the temple. So we have a way of dating him, but not with great accuracy. But Job, in the knowledge of the scriptures that he did have, listen to what he says. He says, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Job 23:12. That's a man who has experienced the benefits of knowing God's word. Cuz nobody would say such a silly thing unless they had enjoyed the benefits of it and said uh, and say I value, I treasure God's word more than my necessary food. And most of us really treasure our necessary food. Amen. We do. But Job says, I treasure it above, beyond that. David also expresses the real value of the word in everyday life, saying, Your word, O God, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm one nineteen, one hundred five. What David is saying, that, that I've become a true practitioner of the word of God so that it lights my way in life. It sheds light on all things. I know how to use the word because I'm thoroughly acquainted with it. I know how to apply it in every occasion. He's still a man, but he understood the word. He knew how to use it. And then I wanna leave something from Paul with you. Paul was thoroughly convicted by the necessity of the churches having all of the word of God. This is what he said to the Ephesian elders. He says, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men because I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Acts 20, 26 through 27. So, you know, the gravity of Paul's conviction is made clear by his reference to the blood of all men. You see, Paul was saying that for him to withhold any part of God's counsel would be equivalent to killing an innocent person. That is a sobering statement. Yeah. The whole counsel of God is what Jesus would say, every word that has proceeded from the mouth of God, from Genesis to Revelation. So if the scriptures are as valuable as God says they are, uh, we are doing a great harm by withholding them from ourselves and our children and the world, okay? But by the word, we have all things pertaining to life and godliness. So it is, you know, my intention to prepare meals as it were from the text of Scripture every Sunday morning and Thursday night. But it is for you, as it is for me, to prepare meals throughout the week for ourselves and for our families if we, if we have them. We should be consulting the wisdom of Scripture in all matters, and we should be yielding to their instruction along the way. And the more time we spend searching the Scriptures, the more we'll acquaint ourselves with God, and the better equipped will be for serving him through life's challenges. Here's a quick survey of the Bible's usefulness for you and your family. Because um, I know that the challenge that arises when, uh, especially new people in the faith, they have when it comes to approaching the scriptures, it seems to be so overwhelming because uh, you see so many different genres of scripture. And uh, there's so much in the volume, and you don't know where to start. But um, I would say start anywhere because I believe in the, the inspiration, authority, and value of the scriptures. I certainly think there are better places to start than others. Uh, I don't think Leviticus is always the best place to start, but most places are a good start. But in the narratives of the Bible, and there are many, in all of them we have the knowledge of God, and there is a moral to every story, an example to follow or avoid as Paul says to the Corinthians. So get into them for yourself. Get into them with your children. In the writings of David, you know, life is very real and life is very raw. Uh, People are always afraid to say to God what is really going on. Now, David, who was well acquainted with God, intimately so, uh, he brought everything to the Lord. He brought his hatred to the Lord, his sorrows, his suffering, his bitterness, so we find life very real and raw there. But we also find that God is, is very present and He's deeply personal. And as you read the Psalms of David, you find him struggling in whether it's sin or it's struggling with the enemy or struggling in relationships. And by the end, he's usually singing a song, isn't he? So through all of that, through the, the, the personhood of God, that he's, he's, he, he deeply cares for us it's by the end of the Psalms that he gives us a song to sing through life's difficulties. From the Proverbs of Solomon there's Solomon there's the knowledge to gain, God's knowledge to gain, and there's God's wisdom for everything. We should consult them frequently. In the prophets there are promises to embrace and there is a just God to fear. And Solomon said that the beginning of wisdom starts where? The fear of God. Go to the prophets. In the Gospels we find Jesus The Son of God made flesh for the purpose of bearing our sins, that he might endure our punishment, die our death, and then defeat death for us, all to atone for our sins, that he might present us faultless before the throne of his Father. And in the epistles, we have the doctrines of Christ to believe and obey as we look forward to his coming. I don't care where you start, really, in the scriptures. You're going to encounter God and his will his goodness for us. So for all that the scriptures are, we, we cannot not afford to withhold them from ourselves or our children or the world. And again, I don't mean here on Sunday mornings at the church. Okay? And of course, I have a responsibility to do that. But acquainting ourselves with God and His Word is a responsibility that falls on us as individuals. And acquainting our children with God and His Word falls on you fathers, Ephesians 6.4. And where there is no believing father present, it falls on you mothers. Thanks, Mom. My encouragement to you this morning is to trust the Word of God for what it is. Feast on it for yourselves and be diligent to feed it to your children daily. Now, if you've never done devotionals yourself uh, or with your spouse or with your children, uh, I would love to speak with you and encourage you in that regard. And, uh, and give you some, uh, some basic instructions to get started. And once you get rolling, it's fine. As one theologian said, if you prepare five minutes the day before, your children will never know. Okay, get in the word yourself and then give it to your family. All right, well, let's pray. If you would stand up and uh, we'll get back to our snow day. I know that my kids want to get back out there again and then figure out how to spoil my wife for Valentine's Day. Oh. All right. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is good. It is a light and a lamp, but you've called us to know it that we might use it in such a way. You've called us to experience you through your word so that we would declare like Job that it's, it's better than my necessary food. So Lord, I pray that you would encourage us Regarding what we do possess, what you've given us, that it contains for us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Lord, fill our hearts up, and as Jeremiah, who struggled to preach the word of God, but then found himself in a position where he could not but preach it, because it was burning like a fire inside him. Lord, help help us to give the word to others. And Lord, I just pray for our congregation that uh, today you would bless them. Uh, I pray for all the families with kids as they are definitely going to be out playing in it and uh, just give them safety and give them fellowship together. So Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Lord, bless your day.